Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. On the flank of Mount Parnassus in central Greece, with rocky cliffs above and a peaceful valley below, lies a ruined city. Today, Delphi is a serenely beautiful spot whose peace is disturbed only by the tourists who pick their way through its remains. But two and a half thousand years ago, this was the most sacred place in the ancient world. Between the 8th century BC and the 4th century AD, travellers flocked to Delphi from hundreds of miles away. Many of them came to consult the Delphic Oracle, the most celebrated and influential source of prophecies in ancient Greece. The Oracle's replies were famously ambiguous, but people trusted it, and it was consulted about some of the most momentous events in Greek history. Its activities are documented by historians, including Herodotus and Plutarch. With me to discuss the Delphic Oracle are Paul Cartledge, A.G. Leventis Professor of Greek Culture at Cambridge University, Edith Hall, Professor of Classics and Drama at Royal Holloway, University of London, and Nick Lowe, Reader in Classical Literature, also at Royal Holloway, University of London. Edith Hall, can you set the scene? Can you tell us about where Delphi is, what it's like, and it was first inhabited? Delphi is indeed in central um, Greece. It's um, There's a, a story that... Uh, it was located there because Zeus set off two eagles to find the middle of the world and they collided at Delphi. It's an absolutely extraordinarily beautiful place where the Mount Parnassus comes down in a massive cleft between two incredibly high, steep limestone rocks called the Phydriades, which means the gleaming ones. They sort of reflect the sunlight and Apollo, the god, is all about light. And the other story about how it was found is that Apollo himself went wandering all over the Greek world through every mountain until he found the one that was appropriate for him. He chose Delphi and it has a Castalian spring which is very important in the cult, this wonderful bubbling spring in antiquity used to to, to come up from between these two great cliff tops and you can see when you're actually sitting in the theatre um, we'll talk more about the sanctuary in, in a minute but you can actually see across the, the sea to the mountains of Olympus which is where the great god's use was, sorry not Olympus, Arcadia, Olympia yeah. where the great god Zeus is worshipped so you can actually see other points of incredibly important, importance in the Greek world and it is numinous, I am not a religious person, there I feel a presence of something that is, is, is sort of metaphysically profound Do we know when it was first inhabited in any substantial way? The, um, there are pot, there's, um, Neolithic pottery and various um, signs of activity nobody really thinks anybody lived there till about 1300 uh, BCE. Um, at that point, some people think that there was some kind of palace or some kind of, 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 of um, um, early palatial structure. Can you give us a rough date when it emerged as an important settlement and what was going on briefly in Greece at the time? It's um, the, the first signs of real importance and international respect, people coming there from a long way away, are in the 8th century um, BCE. This is a time before democracies emerged where you've got um, massive... Um, uh, conflict going on between um, uh, the classes in different Greek city-states. You've got people struggling between kings and, and new men who are more based, more, more um, tradesmen and, and mercantile forces, but the democracies haven't yet come up. Um, and Greeks are, with the spread of the Homeric poems, developed, beginning to get a cohesive culture. Because it's supposed to be the time when Homer, when Homer was... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. ..available. And the, the Greeks are spread across, you know, hundreds of islands and coastlines. They're incredibly scattered cartographically, which is why having a centre 
this navel of the world as they saw it was so important to them. They had to have some psychological places where they could uh, unite as 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 a as a people who spoke the same language and worshipped the same gods. And in fact, if Herodotus says one of the thing the four things that united the Greeks apart from descent and language was our, our joint rituals, our joint practices of worship. Can we talk a bit more about that now, Paul Cartledge, about the the practices of worship in Greece at that time? Let's take the age to... I'm sorry about this. Let's take the age to the 5th century BC. Sure. But let's start one step back. Um, the Greeks had a word for it. No, they didn't. They didn't have a word for religion. Our word religion comes, of course, from the Latin. It means a kind of binding awe in the face of the numinous, the supernatural, the supernormal. The Greeks had um, lots of words for gods because they had lots of different gods and goddesses and superhuman heroes. Theirs was a world full of gods and the key thing was not, as we would say, a matter of faith. For them, religion was a matter of what you do. As Edith says, what unites all Greeks is a certain set of common practices such as consulting oracles, such as building temples, such as holding festivals with processions and games. And Delphi comes to incorporate just about every possible aspect of Greek religious practice. Let's say from the 8th century BC it becomes established as a centre where Greeks come from all over the world. And by that time the Greeks are starting to go as far west as Spain, as far east as what's today Georgia. So I mean this really is a big thing. But what they all have in common is that in in some sense, they're Greek. Not, of course, Greek, they're Hellenes. And pan-Hellenism is a notion that, um, over and above what uh, an Athenian has that separates him from a Spartan, they all have something that's Greek, that's Hellenic. And core to that was what we would call religion, but what they called the things of the gods, taton peon. What did they want the gods to do, Paul? What did they ask the gods to do, and how did they know the gods had done it? Yeah, very good questions both. I mean, gods, we think, or at least I think of them more as powers, and um, superhuman, larger Greeks they've been called, because, of course, Greeks envisaged gods and goddesses and heroes in human form. They had an anthropomorphic um, conception of what divinity was. They believed that gods really intervened in their life. It's a much later philosophical notion to question that absolutely standard Greek belief in practice. Gods are everywhere. They have to be appeased. Because they're very powerful, you have to chat them up. You make offerings to them. You try to avert their anger, that is, by being nice to them or not doing things that you know are likely to anger them. You want to know what they have in mind for humans. And this comes out, of course, very much in a, in a personalised way in Homer. And Homer is indeed coming to be crystallised as an epic in just about the time when Delphi is beginning to be an international Panhellenic sanctuary. Can you give us some idea of the, the, the great gods, a few of them, yeah. and then how many gods there were? Well, um, yes, uh, I can't answer the last, but uh, Edith mentioned Olympia, which takes its name from Zeus of Mount Olympus, Mount Olympus being the largest, the tallest uh, mountain over 10,000 feet. Well, Greeks differed. This is typically Greek. Um, there was a, an inner core of 12 Olympians, but not every Greek agreed on who the 12 were. And there's one very interesting goddess, which I think um, it's odd in a way that she's not part of the canonical 
Article 12. Sometimes she features, and she's called Hestia. She is the goddess of the hearth, and every home had a hearth, and it's absolutely central to the ritual of family construction and family development. And yet, sometimes she's in the 12, sometimes she's not. Zeus is the all-powerful. He overthrew his father, Kronos, in a most unpleasant way by castrating him, and he rules over Olympus as he rules, therefore, by extension over the entire phenomenal world. After him, his brothers, Poseidon, and then there's a guy down below, Hades, who's not one of the Olympians by definition because he's ruler of the underworld, the unseen world, but nevertheless immensely powerful. Apollo we're going to talk a lot about later, and Dionysus. I could go on. No, I've only mentioned... <laughs> Hang on, I've only mentioned the boys so far, and they were boys, actually, very boyish. They were very immature in their behaviour very often. But Hera, Zeus's sister, full sister, wife, and... Um, uh, of course, Artemis, uh, virgin, Athena, the patron goddess of both Athens and Sparta, another perpetual virgin, much more military than uh, Artemis, uh, and so on and so forth. But around the place, there were lots of little gods, weren't ah, there? Good point. And, um, and this, if you lived in a, yeah. a sort of a, a Wicton of Greece... Right on the edge of the centre. Heaven for way, 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 way. Yeah. You'd have your own little gods up there, wouldn't you? If you came from, let's say, Seriphos, which was a teeny-weeny Aegean island, that's probably the equivalent of Wigton, I'd say. But anyway... Um, terrific. Well, what you do is you have local heroes, people who allegedly were born in the very soil or from, grew up in the area that you're from, and you choose them because you think they're a very present help in trouble. And then there are the universal heroes, the most famous of whom, the most important and interesting of whom is Heracles, Hercules in Latin, and then followed closely by Theseus, who is Athens' superhero. So you're absolutely right. There are all these levels of superhuman powers that Greeks must appease and chat up. How did it... How did the oracle fit into this uh, setup, Paul, briefly, before we move on? Since the gods are all-powerful and therefore have something to do with absolutely every aspect of human life in principle, it is likely that whatever you do, either as an individual or a member of a community, a polis, a city, will be influenced directly by a divine will. You wish to find out that will so that you don't go against it, anger it, and bring down retribution upon yourself. So you go to find find out the will of the gods. Truth is a difficult concept because, of course, um, truth can be construed differently. And so what actually happens is always capable of more than one interpretation. Nick, can we're going to talk about Delphi and the god of Delphi was Apollo. What's the significance of of Apollo as a god, and then what's his significance being in Delphi? He's an extremely rich and complex figure. Visually, he's uh, the archetypal young male god. He's shown beardless, and the mythological traditions associated with him tend to develop that side of his identity. He is a god um, who uh, is often involved with uh, young females in quite uh, aggressive ways. He's uh, in cult particularly associated with initiation uh, of young men. Mythologically, he's the uh, he's a senior ranking member of this great Olympian family. He's the twin brother of the uh, virgin huntress goddess Artemis, who in many ways is his counterpart. She deals with young women. He deals uh, with young men. They're both associated with archery, with the bow. Um, they're both associated with 
with uh, disease and medicine. Um, it's Apollo who kicks off the Iliad. The first moment in Greek literature is Apollo visiting the Greek army with a plague because of the offence caused to his priest by the commander-in-chief Agamemnon. But in cult, he's particularly associated with purification, and uh, he's one of the two great oracular divinities, the other being Zeus, but uh, Apollo is the more important of the two. And uh, he also has a particular association with the arts, with music, and the, um, the, the oracles of Apollo tend particularly to be these oracles of inspiration, and it's easy to see a connection between the way uh, the talented musician is possessed by the god and what's going on at oracular shrines like Delphi. Edith told us uh, in very wonderful terms about how Delphi uh, came to be an oracle and how Apollo came to be associated with it. Uh, can you just develop that a little bit? How did the folklore around Apollo at Delphi develop? The local traditions are very interesting because uh, Apollo is generally seen as uh, an interloper, a Delphi, uh, the god, uh, the, the sanctuary um, uh, in myth, although there's no uh, archaeological evidence for this, originally belongs to the goddess of the earth and a female goddess, obviously. And what Apollo does is overthrow either earth herself or, in some traditions, a serpent, the python, uh, who is born of Earth, and he takes over the sanctuary uh, for so himself. So he slaughters the python? He's, he's uh, a serpent-killing god, and he uh, takes over the domain by force. And this uh, pushing out of an older order is an idea which is taken up in various ways, most famously perhaps in Aeschylus' Oresteia, where uh, Apollo becomes the representative of the new rational male order that displaces the older uh, more primitive female system of the divine universe. Edith Hall, what did Apollo, as it were, give to Delphi? Why was it that the fact that he was there made it so important? You've described it very well and lovely, as it is in the centre of Greece, it, oracles are growing somewhere. What did Apollo bring to it, as it were? Why It became the most powerful oracle in Greece. Uh, what did, what, was it Apollo the attraction? I, I think Apollo um, is the attraction, though there were rival cult centres. Zeus had a famous one in Dodona in northern Greece where, where, where the um, uh, prophecies were, came through the rustling of leaves, which were interpreted. You know, so you can have tea leaves, you can have oak leaves, or you can get a female to sit on a tripod, which is, you know, like a tripod in a physics laboratory, and you get her very theatrically, very dr dramatically, to emit uh, sounds We're and We're talking utterances. about Delphi now. Yes. There was no rustling sorry. of leaves of somewhere else. Yes, so, sorry, yeah, I'm now comparing let's get, it. Now, let's get absolutely clear, sorry. because it's difficult enough with I'm, all these myths sorry. flying around the place, that the idea is, and now this is not a myth, this is what happened, yes. as far as we can tell, from good reports, yes. Herodotus, Plutarch, yes. other persons, right? A female, now just tell, tell right. us about... Right, go on. OK. I think the experience of the person visiting Delphi to get an oracle, yeah? So it's like opening newspaper to find your horoscope or whatever, was far more exciting and far more of a, of a touristic sort of experience and a theatrical experience than any of the other oracles. I think it just beat the socks off all of them. I really, really do. First, you had to travel a hard journey to get there to this spectacular place. Then you had to walk up an incredible thing called the Sacred Way past... Um, 
extraordinary buildings. There were about 20 uh, treasuries where different city-states had, had, had given great gifts. Then you have to bathe yourself in the waters of the Castalian Spring, as the priestess herself had. Then you had to go into the Temple of Apollo and down somehow. They always use verbs with down. There's some sort of cave or subterranean chamber or, 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 or um, a cellar where you had to go. And you were faced with the priestess of Apollo sitting atop this massive tripod. Can we just hold the thought? C- we'd keep that story because I want to just go back a little bit. It's too, I mean, it's too rich to spoil. So Fine. we'll stay there. <laughs> and Paul, can we just say, uh, what was Delphi like then at the height of its influence? We're talking about the 5th century. It has begun to sketch it in. We know that there were great statues there, hundreds of statues, much, much, much later looted by Nero. So just give us an idea how this place grew around the idea of its being an oracle. Well, yes, the oracle is at the centre, but the centre is approached through a sacred way. So the key thing is the separation of sacred, or we should say really more sacred, space from non-sacred or secular space. And at the centre, at the as it were, centre of the nest is the queen bee, and this is the, the Pythia. But Delphi is, in another sense, a gigantic war memorial, and it's full of uh, offerings. It's to our way of thinking, extraordinary, by one Greek city which has defeated another, not necessarily defeated a non-Greek power, though it's an all-Greek sanctuary, so you'd think all Greeks would emphasise what they had in common. Actually, sometimes they were much happier emphasising their defeat of other Greeks. It is, on the other hand, the place where, in 479, after the famous resistance and defeat of the Persian invasion, where they put up the serpent column, and it's not coincidental that it's a serpent column, in other words, three bronze um, coils with snake heads at the top on a massive gold tripod. Again, tripod, you see, it's absolutely Delphic symbolism. But lots and lots of these memorials are war memorials of nasty kind against other Greeks. So it's very populated, it's very densely populated. And as you get closer and closer, as you get up to the temple, then you get a sense both of elevation and of centrality. So I think the actual topography is absolutely key to the numinous experience. So it's quite a big city by Greek standards well, at the time. I mean, I'm just trying to get no, a real grip I, on it before gonna, we move on. I'm now going to confuse you further. There is the sanctuary, which is Panhellenic, which is run by an association known technically as an Amphictyony of several Greek communities and cities. There is a city of Delphi, which is small. And there's a connection between them that if you wish to consult the Delphic Oracle, if you wish to consult the Pythia, you need an a Delphic citizen, a citizen of the local city of Delphi, to, as it were, hold your hand, to act as your um, sponsor, because you can't approach directly. It seems that there were very few days in the entire year on which you, either an individual or a community, might actually consult the Pythia. And that, of course, if, you, if some people think it's as few as nine, nine... Yeah. So, in other words, nine months when Apollo reigns, and we should perhaps add in now that there are three other months when Dionysus reigns. So you see nine, nine days, because nine one days, day a month. Seventh of the month, and yeah. yes, nine months. Which is Apollo's day always in, in every Greek city. Right. For example, it's when the Spartans had their assemblies and they held them on Apollo's day, the seventh day of the month. Absolutely right. So um, it is a very rarefied experience. Yeah. Can we just de- develop this, Nick? Now, we've got this place and it's growing. We've got the idea of 
people putting war memorials there, great sculptures there. It's great. It's becoming a busy, rich centre, which might be its undoing at the very end. That's that's to come. Um, can you tell us uh, who looked after it? How, any idea how it was organised? What records have we got? Well, as Paul says, it was run by this independent panel, which was a composite of people from different Greek cities called uh, the, the Amphictyony. So it's it's in, politically independent of in of individual Greek states, and that's a very important fact about its political uh, history. It was even capable of making war um, in its uh, in its own right. But the sanctuary itself has its own distinctive. Style. Staff. The, um, uh, the the oracle itself. Um, we've already alluded several times to the key figure of the Pythia, who is the priestess of Apollo, and who is the one who actually uh, delivers the we, oracle. We, we, she, we're reserving that for Edith. I know. Yes. No. That's that, she's very much um, uh, <laughs> Edith's girl. But the uh, Pythia has uh, a staff around her, including these enigmatic figures called uh, prophetai, who are uh, the English word prophet um, speakers forth or something like that and they have some role not only in shaping or interpreting her utterances but also in uh, guiding the consultant to the, uh, the the oracle in the first place. We have a very reliable first-hand account of this because the historian Plutarch was a citizen of Delphi and he was uh, an official at the place for a while, wasn't he? What That's does right. he say? Yeah. What does he give us? Well, Plutarch, of course, is uh, is writing at the end of the first century AD and he's, he's an intellectual, he's a, uh, a platonic philosopher, so he's interested not only in the history of the sanctuary but also in the theory of what the oracle's doing. And uh, he's, uh, he, he, he writes quite a lot about uh, the oracle from a kind of historical theoretical point of view. He's interested in questions of how it's changed over time and why in some ways it seems to be less colourful um, and taken less seriously in his own time than it seems to have been in the past. But he's also interested in what is actually going on in uh, the, the Oracle. And one um, uh, fascinating uh, line of thought which he explores is that the god is communicating through this human vessel by uh, means of a kind of intermediary power, whom he calls Daimones. Um, this turned out to be a bit of a red rag to Christian authors, but I think we'll come back to that uh, towards the end. Now, so you've got through, and you, you've come from far away. You now, you, what do you bring to it? It's got rich because people have brought things to it. Are you have you got to bring something? You've got to bring an offering. You've, there's got. I mean, I don't want to be reductive about this at all, but is the, it's, it's almost like a fee. Absolutely. Otherwise, you don't get to speak. Absolutely. And then we're going to, and then we're going to come to the tripod. But let's just talk about how no, you no. got there. Absolutely. And, and in fact, we hear very few uh, minor, uh, ordinary people ever getting to go to the Delphic Oracle. This is something that heads of state consulted. It's something that, that rich people, you had to give gifts. You almost certainly could duke Q-jump if you gave bigger gifts. You know, um, you've got to get your local representative to get you up the pecking order. And there are the only these... And that's how it built up its own sense of prestige. It was so difficult to get access to, I, I didn't think. realise it was only nine days a yeah. year. That yeah. is, yeah. So it was so difficult to get it. And that's how it became so incredibly rich. And, and, and one, of, one of the theories of, of how it worked sociologically speaking, is that it actually was a sort of banking... It was the, the ancient central bank of, of, of Greece that, that managed um, value to be, be transferred between different 
city-states because of that. The, the incredible richness of the, the treasuries. I mean, they actually had treasuries there that every city-state built. Mm. Phenomenal, fabulous. And that's why they kept getting raided and why Literally. Nero went there and took all, tried to take all the statues, but in fact he could only get 500 of the, of, of the, of the 4,000 that were there at the time. I mean, it was... We have one play which is actually set at Delphi by Euripides and... It's called the Ion, and in fact, the Pythia is a character in the play. But the opening chorus is of t- girls, tourist girls from Athens, singing. Good heavens! Look at that beautiful statue. Good heavens! They're walking up the Safe Kid Way, looking mm. at all the beautiful artworks. It was the sort of place you really, really wanted to go to. Now let's talk about the Pythia. She's the priestess. She is who, and how does she work? Okay, it is unusual for um, an oracle to have, or for a male god to have a female. Um, speaking. There's something very, very special about this. She is uh, probably selected from a local family uh, to focus or Chrysler or Delphi around that whole area. She is uh, has two of these prophet guys and five um, Hosioi, who are called the holy men. So it's very set up as a very theatrical experience. When, when you arrive, you meet the five holy men and you meet the two prophets. You go down into the temple um, down the steps into the cave or, 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 or the no-go area. The no-go area. Yeah. It's called the Aduton. You go, yeah. you go down into this place and you um, get... You put your question, right? And there's particular formulae for how you put it. You could either ask an either-or question. Shall I give to Athena a big gold statue or a big marble statue? Or it can be, I want to have a child. What do I need to do to have a child? Yeah. Um, and you get your answer. Now, the trouble with the answer, I really desperately myself want it to be the priestess gives it directly to you consulting it in the metre of the hexameter, this with this mm. great six-beat rhythm that Homeric epics in. I think that at times there were very talented priestesses who could, mm. in fact, extemporise in hexameters. Mm. They could probably seen the questions earlier anyway. Yeah. But an awful lot of male scholars have always insisted, including Plutarch, that what actually happens, of course, is that she emits inarticulate feminine grunts, which the prophets then sure interpret. Enough. But she's receiving, she's receiving uh, breath from Apollo, isn't she? She is. She's sitting on top of this tripod. There's some sort of incense or something burning um, beneath her. That tripod, a lot of the ancient sources say, was over a volcanic chasm or cleft in the earth. Though, unfortunately, the rock is limestone. It's not volcanic. You know, we've, had great, we've got great problems with this. And the gas goes up into her body and comes out through her mouth um, in the form of Apollo's utterances. And some, some sources claim this was quite a sort of sexual thing, that it was actually Apollo inserting his breath into her vagina. The ancient Greeks weirdly thought that um, a tube connected a woman's vagina to her mouth so that um, he could breathe basically up her vagina and it comes out of her mouth as his word. Her body is a tube. It's a giant vehicle for the uh, uh, um, expression of Apollo's spirit. Now, Paul, yes, please come in. Well, I'm just going to ask, do you have any sympathy for the view that um, there was some gas, methylene or ethylene? No. Or, no, you've got methane, ethylene. No, you've no. got no recent archaeological work. No. Yeah. Now, just before we move on, uh, quite a few listeners will be thinking, well, this is extremely... Well, not extremely... Um, this was believed in by the greatest intellectuals of the time, some of the greatest intellectuals on the, of the last two and a half thousand years, so let's start that. But it does seem open to fakery. Right. Well, there are notorious cases of bribery of the priest, not of the Pythia, 
but of the male priests. So that we actually have cases of people being convicted by the local authority, the religious authority that oversaw the sanctuary, uh, of bribery, which is a um, capital offence. If the people don't um, go off into exile, they would be executed. So it is known that there are procured oracles. In other words, oracles which are not automatic, they're not um, necessarily uh, genuine. But on the other hand, um, the general thought was that even if the message is ambiguous, even if it's ambiguous, the God knew what the right interpretation was. And it's the human that gets it wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's not that the God is deliberately trying to trick you. The God is not, in other words, wicked, but humans are, and we know that. Can we, without going into yeah. the, the, the famous things which will come yeah. to about kings, can you give us an example of how ambiguous it could be? And, and it's, it's over to the humans to work it out. And the fact is that the oracle is always right. So if yes. they get it wrong, they're wrong. Well, it's hard for me to give an example other than ah, a very big famous big one because, as Edith says, lots, probably the majority, actually, of consultations were by individuals of the nature, how should I get good children if I marry X? will my children be my own and not some other man's? So the answer will be yes or no. And there are lots of those. And later on there is a, another kind of oracle which functions at Delphi as elsewhere. A lot oracle, so you have um, yes, no, lots, and you pull out a lot and the answer is yes or no. Well, one Athenian cr criminal um, who was exiled on pain of death, I mean, he was under, he was under, under capital punishment, sentence capital punishment, went to the oracle to ask if it was safe to go back yet. Is this endorsed? Yeah. Yeah, OK. Yeah, um, yeah. Safe to go back yet. Yeah. And the oracle said, yes, it's, um, um, you will find good law in Athens. So he goes back to Athens and, of course, is executed. Good so Lord, exactly, the ambiguity. Th that's that's yeah. the sort of thing. They were carefully worded so that they could always but be did right. He say, hold on, just a second. Did he, say, <laughs> did he say, is it safe to go back? Or did he say, where will I receive legal pun? Is it better or best? They used yeah. the odd sort of peripheries. Right. Yeah. Um, another man was was told uh, to be beware of, of Pelagos, which is the ancient Greek for the sea. So he spent his entire life inland, would go nowhere near the sea, and was then, of course, um, killed by a man cool. whose name was Pelagos. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. you could always find a way that it was right um, after the fact. Yeah. I, mean, I think yeah. retrospective. And Heraclitus, and we talk about intellectuals, uh -huh. one of the greatest brains of all time, you know, he's one of the greatest pre-Socratic philosophers, said the Delphic oracle neither tells the truth nor conceals it, it merely hints at it. Science. Before we move on to specific, which I think are really entertaining, just finally, <laughs> can we nail the fact that this was accepted by people like Heraclitus, Socrates and so on? This was seriously accepted. Absolutely. One of the things that we haven't quite touched on is that there's a whole hierarchy of, w of uh, ways of uh, ascertaining the gods' will, um, a lot of them involving uh, human specialists. You can read entrails, you can observe the flight of birds, you can... Uh, there were people uh, peddling Nostradamus-style collections of verse oracles and interpreting them for you. There were all kinds of ways in which you could find out the gods' will, but what was special about Delphi was the god himself spoke and that gave it a cachet and a status that all the other local oracles, um, all the other itinerant oracles, simply, and all the amateur modes of divination uh, simply didn't have. Let's go for some examples now. So, Paul, can you give us... Um, um, I think Croesus might be a good one. Who, can you start with 
an yeah. example of what he asked, what he got, and why it was down to okay. be interpreted to the interpretation. We or some of us still say rich as Croesus. In other words, this extremely wealthy guy who, in fact, benefited Delphi by um, giving it um, money to build statues and so on. He was a Lydian. He's not a Greek. <coughs> And before he consulted on what he really wanted to consult, he actually tested not just one, not just two, but something like six or seven oracles in the Greek world. So that's a good indication that there are many, many oracles, and he chose six or seven to consult. But, of course, you shouldn't test oracles. I mean, that is, by definition, a barbaric. It's a, it's a failure. You, it's the wrong uh, motivation. So Herodotus' readers would know, his listeners would know, th- this is going to end badly. So having decided, he set, him, uh, um, he set the oracles an extraordinary test, and it was to do with um, boiling um, tortoises in water with lamb and so on in a cauldron. And Delphi, and one other, by the way, it's often forgotten, but two oracles got it right. Delphi um, was chosen... So he tested yeah, the oracle first. Right. He then put his question which is, um, what should I do vis-à-vis um, this wretched Cyrus and Persia, the great Persian empire that's rising up on my east, which was the biggest thing in the Middle East, in fact, one of the biggest things in the Middle East ever, the rise of the Persian empire. And um, Croesus is right next to it. And the message that he gets from Delphi famously is that if he crosses a particular river, which happens to be the boundary, his eastern boundary, which is bordering onto the Persian Empire, you will destroy a great empire. If you cross the river Halys, you will destroy a great empire. What Croesus does is take the fight to Cyrus. Instead of waiting for Cyrus and defending Sardis, which is his capital, which is very well fortified, he actually attacked. You know, it's rather like a, um, a pathetic animal attacking a lion uh, rather than waiting and defending. So, of course, he got utterly smashed, and um, Cyrus moves uh, imperiously west. So that is an example of an oracle which is ambiguous, because it's not stated whose empire is going to be destroyed, and it's an example of somebody getting it completely wrong, just assuming that it meant he would destroy Cyrus's empire, when the alternative was actually far more plausible. And Milliband will not win this competition. <laughs> Well, I don't know where that um, came from. Yes, yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, anyway, right. Feel, um, though, feel. Let's talk about. Uh, give another example with Xenophon, Nicola. Well, uh, uh, the stories of Croesus, of course, could e- uh, easily be made up generations after the event, and many of the stories of great ambiguous oracles in tragedy, of course, are complete works of fiction. But one uh, that's documented by its own consultant is the extraordinary story um, told by uh, the historian Xenophon, who, as a young man in Athens in 401 BC had uh, received this invitation to embed with a Greek mercenary army that was being raised by the younger brother of the Persian king um, with the ostensible aim of putting down some unruly tribesmen in southern Turkey. And he consulted his old mentor Socrates about what he should do uh, over this. And Socrates said, well, why don't you consult the Delphic Oracle? So Xenophon goes off to Delphi. Um, He's a wealthy um, individual. Uh, He uh, can afford the fee. And he asks the Oracle uh, a fairly standard form of Delphic question, which is to what god should I sacrifice in order to prosper? 
possible in the undertaking that I'm uh, contemplating. And he, go, uh, he gets his answer and he goes back to Socrates and uh, tells him that's all fine. And Socrates says, well, uh, did it ever occur to you to ask the god whether you should go on this expedition in the first place? And uh, effectively what Xenophon had done was to make up his own mind that he, was, he wanted to do this. And he phrases his question to the oracle in such a way that the oracle simply confirms the decision he's already made. And Socrates' advice, uh, interestingly, considering that two years later he was going to be tried and executed for destabilising traditional religion, was that now that you've got this answer for the god, you absolutely have to go. And, of course, this was the famous expedition of the 10,000. They get to southern Turkey, and it turns out that their actual mission is to overthrow the Persian Empire, the mightiest empire um, in the known world, and install this princeling um, on the throne. It all goes horribly wrong. The Greek army is left leaderless, stranded hundreds of miles inside uh, uh, intensely hostile territory. And Xenophon tells the astonishing story of how he himself, after all their generals have been uh, ambushed and executed, um, takes command of the army and leads them these hundreds of miles north to the Greek cities of the Black Sea and, uh, and safety. Now, if we'd been Apollo um, and we'd been asked the right question, it would be interesting to know what kind of answer we would have given. But the important thing is that Socrates told him off. Yes, Socrates yeah. was, uh, in this as in so many other ways, uh, um, really quite a, a conservative uh, religious figure. He, um, But he just, uh, let's get to the point, he told him he'd asked the wrong question. Yes, and yeah. one of the things Greeks were always doing, because they, you know, they, they, they knew that the oracle was unpredictable, was they would frame their question in such a way that the options it presented you with were constrained in the way that you wanted them to be constrained. They were savvy so, people. So, Edith, I'm a bit... I'm a bit slow. I've got the mili a milliband will lose this oh, because yeah. that's bound to be true and an oracle said it, but yeah. which... Yeah, so I was a bit slow there. <laughs> right, OK. <laughs> Let's... <laughs> Let's. I was, I'm, 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 I'm immersed in two and a, a half thousand years ago. Two, two, two. And that's right. All right. Two thousand years ago is where I am at the moment. I'm hanging on there for another few minutes. How does uh, the the oracle enters into Greek literature? Powerfully, doesn't it? Can you take us there? Well, it's already in Homer. Uh, we're told that Agamemnon consulted the oracle to, as to whether or not he should uh, attack Troy, you know, launch the Trojan War. So it's already there um, in, in the Homeric tradition. There are um, a, a three Greek tragedies that deal very, very intensely with the Delphic Oracle and, and with the priestess. One I've already mentioned, um, the Ion. Um, one of the most extraordinary scenes is actually in Aeschylus' Agamemnon, where Cassandra, who is in some ways the prototype of the Pythia. I mean, she is the virgin who emits prophecies that are actually true. Nobody actually believes her. They're incredibly enigmatic. She's clairvoyant. She can see Agamemnon being murdered backstage when no one else can. She uses this strange, strange poetic languages and goes off into a, a, a trance-like state. I mean, I mean, she does. She's Which not... the priestess was all supposed yes. to be in, wasn't she? But she's not taken any drugs. You know, this idea that she's taken narcotics is essentially is, is, is not the case. She's not sitting over any, any, any you know, gas or chasms or anything <laughs> like that. She is possessed by the god. And Anything she comes else. out with this extraordinary um, sequence of, of prophecies. They're all true, but she uses oracular language just like the Pythia, like keep the uh, bull from his cow, keep the bull from mm -hmm. his mate, right? That, 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 that would be exactly the sort of thing that the Pythia might actually say. And she, she, she in, ends up in physical collapse. She's exhausted. You know, she actually goes off on a sort of 
a lot of people used to think it was like shamanism, um, some sort of real possession, um, and then collapses. And so we've got this actual scene of this young virgin girl doing exactly um, who, who, who Apollo loves. In time to, I would love to have got Themistocles in, but we can't. Right, Paul, can you tell us how it came to an end, how it died out, the oracle? Well, it's very blunt. Um, Christianity uh, arose slowly, and by the end of the 4th century, it had become the official religion of the entire Roman Empire, and the old Greek world was the eastern half of the new Roman Empire. And Theodosius I simply outlawed um, the Delphic Oracle as he outlawed any manifestations of non-monotheistic um, religion, any pagan worship. But uh, there is an earlier moment at which Christianity is rising. We're in the middle of the same 4th century and there is on the throne Julianos, or Julian as we call him, who was actually a pagan, a committed a theoretical polytheist and he tried desperately for two years mm. to, as it were, reverse the tide of monotheism by reinstating and reinvigorating the old pagan cults. And, of course, Delphi was absolutely central to his project, so he sends a message to Delphi, you know, what's going on, guys? And he gets a terribly sorry um, <laughs> message to the effect that the inspiration from Apollo through the Pythia to human beings has dried up and it's something like the waters... No Apollo's living in a hut yeah. now yes. and the waters are dried up and yes. he can no longer speak. Yes, I mean, that's pretty... The oracle actually predicts its own demise. Yeah. It's last prophecy that we know. And is so 40 years, of... 30 years later, it's formally legally outlawed by an edict, an imperial edict. Very quickly, yeah. do you think this was possession, in, it had some kind of psychic authenticity, or do you think it was mumbo-jumbo? Oh, goodness, mumbo-jumbo is a horrible word, um, horrible phrase. It was um, as genuine as can be, but not all Pythias would have been equally possessed on every occasion. And so um, the, the, it's very easy, and we're in danger, aren't we, of sort of adopting a Christianizing uh, rhetoric, if we call it mumbo-jumbo, because it really mattered to the Greeks for a thousand years. It was a very potent force. Sure. Good. Edith? I think that it varied. It, well, it did run for more than a thousand years, and that's an incredibly long time. You think back to 900 AD to now, you know, in terms of yeah, different yeah. different things that could happen within it. Um, I think that I see it as a form of, of, of deliberation. It's just another factor you take into yeah, account. It's a, a process of, of, of making decisions, and as such can actually be very constructive because it's focused attention. Yes, if you live in a polytheistic world, a world that's absolutely full of these powers, and you take them as a reality, and this is one of the direct ways of accessing them. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you, Edith Hall, Nick Lowe and Paul Cartledge. Next week we'll be talking about the Spanish Armada, 1588, Francis Drake, English seamanship, the weather, Tilbury, Good Queen Bess, and old-fashioned glory. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast... Why not try others, such as Thinking Aloud, where Laurie Taylor discusses the latest social science research. To find out more, visit bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4.